Keep your Bibles opened to Philippians um, chapter one. Will be be a few places where I'll be taking you kind of on a short detour to a few other passages of Scripture as we work uh, through this message this morning. But excited to share. Uh, Philippians is probably one of my favorite, at least New Testament books. Um, I've read through it often. I've taught through it before. One that that I enjoy. There's great um, encouragement in the book or the letter of Philippians. Um, I think for those of us that that have been um, walking through maybe challenging times, we can be encouraged by Paul's words when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And that comes from a man who's writing this letter while he's sitting in prison. And so um, I I think we can find great joy and encouragement from the words of Paul. We're going to continue and bring this, really bring this Prayers with Paul series to a close uh, this morning. I want to begin... Uh, sharing just this story with you. Arthur Simon, who is the founder of the international organization Bread for the World, believes that all aspects of our lives need to be touched by Christ. His father, who grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, taught him, quote, "Even even the cows should know you are a Christian, by the way you treat them. Arthur has incorporated this philosophy into his own ministry, adding this phrase, and if the cows, how much more people. I think Jesus sums it up very clearly in his words in the Gospel of John. He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And then Paul, I think, sums it up with these words in Philippians 1, verse 27. He says to the church of Philippi and still speaks to us today, above all, Paul says, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Here's a question that I want us to ponder. I don't want you to raise your hand or answer this out loud verbally. I want you to consider this as we move through this text this morning. But does my conduct, does my life, my attitude, my behavior, does it reveal to the world that I am a Christ follower? Or is it difficult for the world around me that is in desperate need of a savior, is it difficult for the world to discern where I stand when it comes to my relationship with Christ? Uh, There are numerous people I know today, numerous star athletes that profess belief in God, but I think when we look at their conduct, it it falls short and certainly says otherwise. In Paul's short letter to the Christ followers in Philippi, he opens this letter. We're not going to go through the whole letter of Philippians, but he opens this letter with a note of thanksgiving, as Paul often does. If you read through the letters of Paul in the New Testament, he often will begin with some greeting or some thanksgiving, except in Galatians, where he just wants to get to the point because they are so far off track He skips the thanksgiving altogether. But here in Philippians, as he does often, Paul begins with a note of thanksgiving for their partnership in the gospel. We will see here in a few minutes that the church at Philippi was a very dear friend of Paul. 
And they were very instrumental when it came to partnering with him for the sake of the gospel. But following this Thanksgiving greeting, he then follows it up with a prayer of petition, which we read in our opening text. The heart of this prayer, I believe, is the desire for the church to live worthy of the gospel, for our conduct to match the life and character of Christ. How many want our conduct to match the, the life and character of Christ? Amen. And so I think at the heart of this prayer, we're going to see that that is certainly what Paul is praying for, for this congregation. And I would challenge us all to join with Paul in that prayer as well. Then our prayer, if that's the case, our prayer should include or should contain the following things. And I just want to walk us through Paul's prayer this morning. And I think you will be challenged to hear what Paul and what the word of God has to say. Number one, as we pray this prayer with Paul, it should contain, first of all, a longing for a love that overflows toward others. A love that overflows toward others. Let me explain. We read in Philippians chapter one, the opening portion of his prayer of petition. Paul says, I pray that your love, speaking to the church at Philippi, I pray that your love will overflow or some translations will say abound more and more. So, so what of this love do we need to think of? First of all, the love that Paul speaks of here in chapter one, verse nine is not understood as affection. Sometimes when we think about love, we, we think about affection or ooey-gooey feelings. That's not what Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Instead, he's talking about their behavior, their conduct toward others. Now, Paul will speak in other places. Paul does speak about his affection or his love for the believers in Philippi. We read in just one verse before, listen to what Paul says. He said, God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. So Paul certainly had an affection and a love for this church at Philippi. But when he begins his prayer of petition, he's not speaking about a love in terms of affection but he's talking about a love in terms of their conduct or behavior that will overflow or abound more and more. Let me explain just a bit further. Here he petitions for the believers to be overflowing with love that is expressed in seeking the benefit of the one so loved. Um, we know that the theme of expressed love is carried throughout this letter. We read in Philippians chapter two, verse two, it says, then make me truly happy, Paul says, by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another. Again, he's not talking about an affection here. He's talking about their conduct, their behavior, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Paul actually petitions the same thing for the church at Thessalonica. Listen to what he says when he writes to this church. He says, and may the Lord make your love for one another 
and for all the people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. So when Paul prays this prayer, he begins his prayer over the church at Philippi. He says, I pray that your love, your conduct, your behavior toward one another would abound more and more. May it overflow as Paul prays this prayer. We know that this love that Paul speaks of Not only is he referring to their conduct, but it is a selfless love. It's selfless in nature, and it always considers others. We hear Paul's instructions to the Philippian believers in chapter 2. He will go on and say this. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests. But take an interest in others too. So, so when Paul prays this prayer in chapter one, that their conduct, their love would overflow for one another, he goes on to describe what that looks like. It's selfless in nature. He says, don't, don't seek to impress others. Don't, don't give in to your selfish ways. Instead, in your humility, consider others even before yourself. Folks, I think it is best reflected, this concept of love that Paul refers to, love toward others. It's best reflected and it's most understood in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We read these words in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, and by we, he's not just talking about those that he's writing to, he's talking about all of humanity All of us, we were utterly helpless. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time. How many are thankful for God's perfect timing at just the right time? When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Again, guess what? News alert, that's all of us. Every single one of us, we are all sinners. We all fall short. We are all in desperate need of a savior. And Christ is that savior. Verse seven, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us. How? By sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. At just the right time, Christ sent forth his son to die for us sinners. The love Paul was talking about that he is praying for this church to overflow the conduct toward one another is reflected best and understood when we understand the love that Christ had for us, humanity sinners, by dying for us. This love already really characterized the Philippian believers. Paul prayed for it to abound more and more. He was praying for an ever-increasing love for one another. So, so Paul knew that this church, they, they understood, they, they reflected this love well. And he speaks to that in this letter that he writes to the church of Philippi. But Paul knows that, that they were not at a spot where they could just get comfortable. He wanted that love to continue to grow and to abound more and more and for their conduct to, to reflect the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so when he writes this letter, he doesn't want selfish ambition and vain conceit to start to creep their way in and undermine the love that they already express for others. 
It's very easy. We, we can be in a position where we love others well, but all of a sudden selfish ambition and, and vain conceit and the lack of humility can start to uh, creep their way into our life. And then all of a sudden we start falling short when it comes to loving others well and our conduct no longer reflects his character. Instead here, he's praying for this love to keep on increasing, to abound. He doesn't just say, I pray that your love would increase. He says, I pray that your love would overflow or abound more and more. When we think about overflowing, we're not talking about taking a glass and just you know, filling it up with water three-fourths of the way. We're talking about taking a glass and, and allowing the sink to just continue to overflow that, that glass. And that's the love that he's talking about. Not just, just enough. He's talking about overflowing, abounding more and more. This is the love that he is calling for. This was the Philippian way. That was demonstrated often. Won't have you jump to every text here, but um, we know based on scripture that the Philippian church, they loved well. They partnered well with Paul when it came to the advancement of the gospel. Um, In their poverty, we read about this. If you're a note taker, you can jot this text down. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through six. We know that in the poverty of the Philippian church, they were poor. They didn't have a lot, but they understood the importance of the gospel. They understood the importance of the mission of making sure the gospel got to the ends of the earth. And so in their poverty, the Philippian church was one of the first churches to partner with Paul in the advancement of the gospel. They were incredibly generous with their resources. It wasn't, it wasn't about for them how much can we get as a, as a congregation, as a church, but it was how much can we give to Paul and to other missionaries to make certain that the gospel is getting to the uttermost parts of the earth. They were incredibly generous even in their poverty. They were faithful financial partners with Paul in the work of the ministry. If you still have your Bibles open to Philippians, just maybe turn a a page or two over to chapter four. Look at verse 15, chapter four, verse 15. This is what Paul says. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. They were incredibly generous and they were incredibly faithful. They were humble. This, the, the idea of selfish ambition and vain conceit, this was not the Philippian way, but he wanted their love to continue to increase. They were faithful partners with Paul in the work of the ministry. They were also gospel-centered and mission-oriented believers. Turn back to Philippians 1. Look at verse 5, verse 5 of chapter 1. And Paul says this, For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard until now. That's why Paul had such an affection for the church at Philippi because they were incredible partners when it came to carrying out the mission that Paul had been called to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so Paul, recognizing the Philippian way, they knew how to love well. They knew how to have conduct that would reflect the character of Christ because they were already doing it. But Paul, in his prayer, as he begins this letter, he is praying that this love and this conduct that they've already expressed and demonstrated, he wants it to be ever-increasing, to overflow, to abound more and more. And that's the prayer that he prays over this church. So my question for us this morning is this. How can we 
as a church, if we pray this prayer with Paul, how can we tangibly express this love inside the Christian community? What does it look like for believers to have conduct that reflect the character of Christ or conduct that love others well? Let me just give you a few examples this morning. First of all, this love is willing to forgo certain activities or practices that we may be free to do in order not to cause another brother or sister to stumble. Uh, There may be many things that in our liberty as Christians, we have the freedom to do, but if it causes another brother or sister in the Lord to stumble or to fall away in the relationship with Christ, Paul would say very clearly, we'll see it here in a minute. He would say, "Then, then get rid of that, lay aside your freedom and your liberty for the sake of another brother. That is love or conduct that reflects the character of Christ. It's not about what I can do in my freedom or in my liberty, but it's about in what I'm doing. Is it affecting or how is it affecting my brothers and sisters in Christ? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says. He says, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your, quote, superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, Won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer, he's not talking about an unbeliever here, he's talking about a weak believer, a newer believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, Paul's words here are pretty strong. You are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat, Paul says, causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. So Paul's heart here is not about what can I get away with in my liberty as a Christian? What can I get away with in the freedom that I have? He's talking to a group of people, the mature believers, they knew that idols weren't real. They knew that there was only one God and they had no problem eating meat that had been sacrificed to quote idols because they didn't worship idols. They only believed in the one God. But maybe for somebody that had a a weaker conscience or somebody that came out of that lifestyle, what Paul is saying, what what if that weaker brother or sister sees you in your freedom eating that meat and they just came out of that lifestyle and all of a sudden they look at you and think, well, maybe it is okay. And then they fall back into that that temptation and that trap. And and guess what? They fall away from Christ. Paul is saying, if if you're in your liberty, you cause another brother or sister to sin. We're sinning against Christ. And so Paul says, I don't want to even engage. I don't want to eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another brother or another believer to stumble. So, so what does it look like for us as believers inside? And he, again, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. So what does it look like for us to have a love that is overflowing, that is abounding more and more inside the Christian community? Number one, this love must be willing to forego certain activities or practices that we may be free to do. Again, in order not to cause another brother or sister to stumble. Number two, this love must be willing to lay aside our privilege and position in order to serve others. Paul addresses that. We're not gonna, not gonna preach a sermon today on Philippians 2, but he addresses that in what is called the Christ hymn. When he talks about having, we are to have the mind of Christ, 
Um, Jesus came in the form of man. He humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, at the beginning of that kind of Christ him, it says that he emptied himself, which uh, many people believe it speaks of him laying aside. He, he was fully God and fully human, but he chose not to operate in his divinity. He laid aside his divine privileges so that he could serve one another. And so if we are going to have a conduct or a love that loves others well, uh, there will be times where we need to maybe lay aside our privilege or our position. And I'll just speak for myself here. Sometimes we may need to lay aside our, our um, desire to be right. How many of you love to be right? How many people hate it when you're wrong? I, I'm, there, I'm right there with you, okay? I'm in that camp, but there are times, and I'm, again, I'm preaching to myself here for a minute, and Holy Spirit convict me as I preach, but, but there are times where I may need, for the sake of another believer, brother or sister in Christ, I may need to lay aside my right to be right or my desire to be right for the sake of another. That's what that Christian conduct, that, that love that abounds more and more really looks like. Again, we're talking about inside the Christian community, and there are times that I want to have the last word. There are times that I know maybe that I'm right or I feel in my bones that I'm right and I want to let somebody know. But there are times that I have to check myself and say, okay, is that really, is that really going to make a difference? And if I, if I speak my mind here in this moment, am I going to encourage my brother or sister or is it going to cause some tension between my brother? And if it's going to cause tension, that's the Holy Spirit saying, don't speak, <laughs> just be quiet. Sometimes we have to lay aside our privilege and our position in order to serve. That's what that love look like, looks like. Listen to this story. Uh, Shane Claiborne spent a summer in the slums of Calcutta, India with Mother Teresa, wrote the following about one of his experiences there. Listen to this experience. People often ask me what Mother Teresa was like. Sometimes it's like they wonder if she glowed in the dark or had a halo she was short, wrinkled, and precious, maybe even a little ornery, like a beautiful, wise old granny. But there is one thing he said that I will never forget, her feet. Her feet were deformed. Each morning in mass, I would stare at them. I wondered if she had contracted leprosy, but I wasn't going to ask, of course, hey, mother, what's wrong with your feet? One day a sister said to us, have you noticed her feet? We nodded, curious. She said, her feet are deformed because we get just enough donated shoes for everyone and mother does not want anyone to get stuck with the worst pair. So she digs through and she finds that worst pair. She puts them on her feet first. And years of doing that, have deformed her feet. Years of loving her neighbor has deformed her feet. It's a tangible expression, maybe an extreme expression, but it's a tangible expression of what it looks like for, for us to sometimes be willing to lay aside our position and our privilege in order to serve another brother or sister in the Lord. Because it's not about us. It's about pointing people to him. And if that means I need to lay aside my right to be right, if I need to lay aside an activity or a privilege that I know that I have because I'm free in Christ and it doesn't bother me, but it's gonna cause another brother or sister to stumble, if it's gonna affect and impact the kingdom of God, then maybe, maybe I need to lay that thing aside. 
Number three, this love will do what is necessary to keep the fellow believer from stumbling off the path marked by truth. Um, let me just read this text, Galatians 6, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says. And again, he is talking to, this is key, he's talking to believers here. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly, that's key too, gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. I know that there is this, this movement today. Um, there are several people that know Matthew chapter seven, I think verse one, judge not lest you be judged. Um, that's thrown out. But, but listen, we are talking here. We're, we're not talking about casting judgment. We're not talking about um, just pointing someone's fault out and says, look how terrible they are. Look at what they're doing. We're talking about one believer, one brother and sister going to somebody else, most likely somebody that they have a pretty good relationship with and, and instructing them out of love so that they don't fall into temptation and eventually fall away from Christ. This is not about pointing out someone's sin or fault and saying, how horrible that person is. This is because I love you and I wanna make certain that eternally you are right with the Lord. I want to gently, that's key, gently and humbly point these things out and help you be restored back into right relationship with God. And so this love, this conduct that Paul speaks about um, will do whatever is necessary to keep fellow believers from stumbling off the path marked by truth. I don't want any of you to fall off that path. I, I want to make certain that your relationship with Christ is pure and holy so that one day you will see him face to face and will spend eternity with him. And so pointing out faults just for the sake of saying to somebody, man, you're horrible or to make yourself feel better is not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, if you truly love another brother or sister in the Lord, and you see that they are on a, a path right now that does not reflect the truth of God, then in a gentle and in a humble fashion, and I would suggest to you, if you don't know the person at all, uh, maybe God's not calling you to point that out because it always helps if you have a relationship with the person. But he says to do it gently and humbly, out of love, out of love for the soul of the other person that you are speaking with. There's a few keynotes here, and I won't linger on this. Um, first of all, this must be done, as Paul notes, with gentleness and with humility. So I would suggest to us this morning, if we can't be gentle and we're not going to be humble about it, again, don't speak. Number two, we need to make certain that when we do so, that we guard ourselves from falling into the same temptation. Number three, love for your brother and sister, not judgment, must be the motivation. The motivation behind pointing out somebody else's sin and their faults is just to make us feel better about where we are in our relationship with God. Then that is more of a judgment, not a out of love. I want to make certain that they are right with Christ. And so we need to make certain that our motivation is pure, that our desire is to see that person restored uh, in right relationship with God. And most often those conversations probably happen between you and that other brother or sister in the Lord and not three, seven, 12, 25, 500 people or social media. Um, that's not what social media is for. Those are conversations that you have with one another. Number four, this love 
that Paul speaks of that is to overflow. When we pray, God, give us a love that would overflow toward others. This love makes discipleship and faith instruction a priority among new believers. Um, one of the last things that we want to do is we, want, we don't want to just get somebody to the point of, of conversion and coming to the altar. Uh, we want to see them grow in the relationship with the Lord. We need to pray with and for those believers. Number five, this love looks to edify and encourage others in the way of truth. Uh, we are to encourage one another. We are to edify one another. And if our words are not edifying or encouraging, uh, maybe we need to have another check, self-check. All right, what I'm saying is it, edifying the believer or is it tearing them down? If it's tearing them down, it's very likely not from God in the first place. Number six, this love, and this is maybe my favorite, this love is not an attention seeker, but a Christ exalter. When Paul prayed that their love would overflow, that it would abound more and more, Paul was not praying that their lives would be so put on display that people would say, wow, look at how incredible they are. Look how well they serve and look how, way, how well they love one another. That was not the point. Paul is praying, we'll see at the end of his prayer, the whole point of it is that their love would abound more and more so that God would be praised and that he would be exalted. And so this love, this conduct, we serve, we love well, not so somebody will pat us on the back and say, wow, you're such an incredible servant of the Lord. So I'm so grateful for that. Um, it is to point people to Christ. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage others when we see them, you know, love well and serve well. But the point is not for me to get attention. The point is for me to give the attention to Christ, to exalt him. So he's praying that this love would be ever increasing. Let me move on in the text. I won't spend that much time uh, with uh, the other two points here this morning. Number two, a desire for Second component of this prayer is that there should be a desire for an increase of knowledge of God and depth of insight. Look at Philippians 1 verse 9, that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. What is meant by knowledge of God? Um, let me just give this to you quickly. The, the Greek word that's used here is epinosis. It's not speaking, again, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. It's not speaking of knowledge about something or someone, but it refers to a full, innate knowing that comes from experience and relationship. We see this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity all that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. And it's not talking about God just knowing of me. He's talking about having a relationship, uh, an experience with me and him, uh, me with him. Um, when I think about, just let me give you an example. Um, think about um, my relationship with my wife, my spouse. Um, I, I certainly can, and I should try to do whatever I can do to know things about her, um, but, but it's not not just about knowing things about her, but sharing experiences with her. And, and so that's what he's calling them to, not just having knowledge about who God is, not to just add more uh, facts to our memory bank and, and know 66 books of the Bible or know this verse or that verse. But what Paul is praying for this church to come to is a place where they have an experiential relationship with Christ, um, that they would not just know of him, but they would share experiences with him. And, and so what is the purpose of this ever-increasing knowledge and depth of insight? Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 10, he says, I want to understand what really matters 
so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. So the purpose is twofold. Number one, there is an immediate purpose for the Philippians to discern what is best. How many want discernment to know what is best in our life? Uh, I think we all should. And I think that's what Paul is praying here for these believers, that they would be able to discern what is best. Well, he wanted these believers to be able to accurately assess what was absolutely essential regarding their life with Christ. I don't have time to read it, but if you go back and read Philippians chapter three, verses one through 11, you will see that there is this group of people uh, from the outside called Judaizers. Judaizers. Judaizers, what they were trying to do is they were trying to add to the cross. Uh, they wanted to say the cross plus circumcision brought one salvation instead of just Jesus Christ and the cross. And so what Paul is trying to do is he wants to make certain that they have such an experience and knowledge and depth of insight of who God is that they would be able to discern as outsiders come in, okay, that, that's not, that doesn't align with scripture and Jesus didn't teach that, that we're saved through the cross and through some other means. We're saved by grace through faith and it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he is praying that these believers would be able to discern what is best and we should pray the same. Because still today, we still live in a culture today where truth is under attack. And we as believers, we need to be able to discern between what is true and what is not true. We need to be able to discern what is truth and what is distorted truth. And so as believers, we need to be praying this prayer with with Paul. God, give us knowledge of who you are, not just facts about you, but help us to have an experiential relationship with you in depth of insight. Why? So that I can, as a believer today, I want to be able to discern what is true, what is from God and what is not. And there's all kinds of things today that are trying to creep their way into the church that may be disguised as truth, Folks, the, the enemy is, is great at disguising things and making it look like something is good or true. Go all the way back to the garden. What did he do with Adam and Eve when he pointed to that fruit? He, he disguised it. He made it look appetizing, made it look good, made it look like it was okay to eat from. And then all of a the sudden, they're looking at something that they were told not to eat from. And now in their hearts and minds, they are convinced that the enemy will try to convince us that something that is not true is true. And so we need, folks, as believers, we need to be people of the word. How do we know Christ? How do we experience and have a relationship with him? Well, we have the living word of God right here. He has revealed himself to us in his word. And if we're gonna be able to discern what is true and not, we have to be people of the word. We, we, can't, we can't do it apart from that. We can't just hope that, that one day God will just pop something in my mind. If I'm not reading his word, it's gonna be very hard to discern what is true and what is not. And, and, and our gauge will no longer be scripture. It'll be what we see on social media, what we hear on the news, what we see on a billboard, instead of what is truly in the scriptures, which is why we need to be people of the word. Paul once thought that his credentials were valuable and worth boasting in, but his experience with Christ revealed otherwise. 
Look at Philippians chapter three, verses five through eight. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm pure-blooded citizen of Israel, member of the tribe of Benjamin, real Hebrew if there ever was one, member of the Pharisees. He goes on and on and on, gets down to verse eight. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else. I counted it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. What was the ultimate purpose of this prayer for the depth of insight, for knowledge of God. The ultimate purpose is for the Philippians to be pure and blameless till the day of Christ. One of these believers to be sincere in their motives. That's what pure is speaking of. See it in 2 Corinthians 2. You see, we are not like the many huskers who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God, how? With sincerity, with pureness and with Christ's authority. He wanted these believers to not be the cause of another person to stumble. When he's talking about being blameless here, he's not talking about uh, lacking offense, but, but he's referring to being in such a position where my life and my conduct doesn't cause another brother or sister to stumble, which goes back to a love that is overflowing, that is abounding more and more. Paul is essentially praying that these believers would be so pure that they would not be the cause for someone else's fall from Christ. And this is what love for one another truly looks like. My conduct can certainly impact the eternal status of another brother or sister in Christ, which is why Paul is urging them. That's why he's praying for them to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be a faithful witness of Christ himself. Folks, whether we want to accept it or not, our conduct, how we present ourselves, how how we act and how we respond to situations does have an effect on other people, believers and non-believers both. And so Paul here, he he knows the Philippian way is the way of love. They, They were not selfish in their ways. They were some of the first ones to partner with Paul in the advancement of the gospel. They were generous in their giving. He wanted to make certain that selfish ambition and vain conceit did not creep its way into the life of the church. And so Paul, as he prays over this church at the very beginning, he is praying that their love would abound more and more. They would have a depth of insight and knowledge of who God is and and experience with him so that they would be able to do what? Discern what is best. So that they would be able to tell, is this from God or is this the enemy trying to distort the truth? And so that they would be pure, they would have sincere motives and blameless. He wants them to live their life in such a way that their conduct does not cause a brother or sister to fall away from Christ. Instead, he desires that their conduct would be so pure, so blameless, that there would be others saying, I want what that person has. I want to experience what that person has experienced. I want to know Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Final piece is this. There was a yearning, final part of the prayer, a yearning for a fruit-filled life that brings glory to God. He ends the prayer like this. He says, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Would you stand with me? I want to end, I want to end with this story. 
in his sermon titled, Think Hard, Stay Humble, Francis Chan told the following story about a man named Vaughn who radiated the love of Christ to everyone around him. Listen to this story. A few years ago, a missionary came to our church and told a beautiful story about sharing the gospel with a remote tribe in Papua New Guinea. At the end of the story, this missionary said, I should really give the credit to Vaughn, my former youth pastor who loved me and inspired me to live for Christ and share the gospel with others. The next week, another guy came to our church and he challenged us to start sponsoring kids living in poverty. The second speaker also concluded by saying, quote, I'm involved in this ministry because of my youth pastor, a guy named Vaughn. I found out those guys were from the same youth group. Then the next week, another speaker named Dan told us about his ministry at a rescue mission in the inner city of L.A. And after Dan's talk, I casually mentioned it was so weird. The last two weeks, both of our speakers mentioned how much impact their youth pastor Vaughn had on them. Dan looked surprised and then he told me, I know Vaughn. He's a pastor in San Diego now and he takes people into the dumps in Taiwan where kids are picking through the garbage. I was just with Vaughn. And we would talk in the city and these kids would run up to him and he would show such deep love and affection for them. He hugged them and have gifts and food for them. He'd figure out how to get them showers. Francis, it was eerie. The whole time I was walking with Vaughn, I kept thinking, if Jesus was on earth, I think this is what it would feel like to walk with him. He just loved everyone he ran into. And he would tell them about God. People were just drawn to his love and affection. And then Dan said this, the day I spent with Vaughn was the closest thing that I've ever experienced to walking with Jesus. Hearing this made me think, would anyone in their right mind say that about me? Would anyone say that about you? Preacher noted. And as I thought about all of this, I prayed, Lord, That's what I want. I don't want to be the best speaker in the world. That doesn't matter. I don't want to be the most intelligent person on the planet. That's not what I want to be known for. He concluded by saying, I want to be known for someone saying, wow, he's a lot like Jesus. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed this morning. I want to pose this question. You don't need to respond by raising a hand or anything like that, but just want to pose this question and take just a second and allow the Holy Spirit to really, really reveal the secrets of our hearts. Does my conduct, does my life so reflect the life and character of Jesus that when others see me, when others interact with me, they feel like they've been in the presence of Jesus. Not asking you to raise your hand. I'm just asking you to take just a minute to pray and really ask honestly, ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, is my life, does my conduct, does it reflect your character? Is my love overflowing? 
Do I have the, the depth of insight and the knowledge of God and my living my life the purpose of being pure and blameless? All to bring glory and praise to God. Does my life reflect the character and the life of Jesus?